0: I'm accustomed to being underestimated and I find it to be incredibly humorous. There's nothing I enjoy more than someone thinking that I can't bat around financial facts or policy, be it foreign or domestic, if we're talking about political activism. I think being underestimated can be an incredible fuel.
1: Welcome to On Your Terms with Erin King, a show about living a life you truly love. Here's Erin. Hello everyone, Erin King here, and let me ask you a question. When it comes to your your money, your finances, what's your money story? Today I'm here live in Los Angeles with Sophia Bush and Nia Botts for the November-December money issue of Success Magazine. They have been dropping incredible nuggets, their expertise, their story, their experiences, and most of all, their mission. Pick up the issue, you are not going to want to miss it. Hello, everyone. Erin King here, and welcome to On Your Terms. Today, I'm joined by Sophia Bush and Nia Botts, two of the most dynamo women on the angel investing scene today. Girls, thank you so much for joining me here today. I cannot tell you how excited I am. Thank you you for having us. (laughs) So exciting. So before we dive into all of your incredible incredible ventures. You are, you know, activists, entrepreneurs, investors, you have created so much awareness around so many key topics. I want to rewind it back to the beginning a little bit. I want to know a little more about kind of your money story, you know, the role that money finance has played in getting you to where you are today. So obviously we've heard, you know, money's power, but money's also energy, right? know, my family, Irish immigrants, I'm the first woman in my entire family to have made my own wealth, manage my own wealth. I'm the first woman that doesn't have to ask my husband for money. And that's an interesting identity to kind of step into in terms of how we think about what wealth creation and really that independence, that identity can do for us. So tell us about your money story. I mean, where did this all start for you?
2: I would say probably with my father, um, you know, he's a professional investor and money manager. We have been managing pension funds in our family business for almost 35 years. And it was a union business managing pension funds. My grandma was a teacher. My grandfather was a postal carrier. And really thinking about how to secure the futures of families was something that was always ingrained in us as a family, but also it was core to our business. So I learned that money is certainly power. It's also security. It's also options. And my parents were always about making sure that I was able to live a full life by preserving as many options for me as possible. And I think that's the way that I've always thought about money. I think more in a professional sense now, you know, Money tells the story of an organization. It tells you how capital efficient business businesses and the strategies that they are employing is. As angel investors, a lot of what we do is about evaluating uh, current and future cash flows. So money is power. Money creates options and money tells a story, especially when you pay attention to how it flows through an organization. So I think for me, ultimately, um, I've had a healthy respect for it and understand that by learning more about it, you can understand how systems work.
0: Mm, Mm -hmm. So
1: good. What about you, Sophia?
0: You know, similarly to you, my father is an immigrant. My mother's mother and family immigrated here you know my mom grew up in a housing project in the bronx my grandfather was a navy man and then made mannequins by hand for most of his life my father moved to the u.s to go to college and is an artist and so there's always been a very interesting understanding you know as nia mentioned of money being something that can create options for a family but was certainly not something in enormous supply in my family's story. And interestingly, to see my father and then my mother, when they were married and she helped him run his business, you know, build a comfortable life together. Again, a life with more options for me than they had, but certainly not as many options if we use the term as so many of the other people in and around Los Angeles and in and around the entertainment industry. was an interesting way to get acquainted with it. And it really wasn't until I started learning about the math behind what things look like in the public. You know, I always laugh when, when somebody, for example, talks about what an actor or an entertainer earns every year. People talk about that in my day job line of work. I always say like, they take home 20% of that. (laughs) You know, 10% goes to this person, 10% goes to this person, 10%. You know, there are realities about money that we don't talk about. And we see the way that people story tell about money out in the world and certainly on social media, some of which is honest and some of which is all smoke and mirrors. And I think for the two of us, you know, in our early friendship, being two women who worked in different avenues of media, interestingly seeing how little money there was around for creatives, yet how much money there seemed to be everywhere, really made us want to understand money intrinsically because the stories are powerful, but the thing that really felt the most powerful and that tended to be held back by gatekeepers was access. So how could we begin to invest? How could we begin to fundraise for philanthropy? How could we begin to surface conversations about financial equity in spaces where women in entertainment traditionally weren't having those conversations? That's really been the journey for the two of us.
1: And how did the two of you first come to have this dynamic partnership that is just the energy off the two of you together is palpable. So tell us your love story. What's, where, did you, where did you two meet? How did this start?
2: You know, I think because we both came from entertainment, um, you know, Sophia's still working in that space that people assume that that's where we met. But it was actually at a social impact conference. So at the time, I was overseeing social impact and strategic partnerships at Viacom. And there was Sophia, <laughs> probably I'm, I'm trying to remember, like at one of the front tables, like just seriously taking notes. And every time she had a point to make, she raised her hand. Like, this is wild. Also, I needed her notes because I had come late to the session. <laughs> so we it. became friends in sort of like the truest, I guess, most nerdy way possible. But really bonding about ways in which we could make the world better from where we were. She had a tremendous amount of access, you know, being an actress on a network television show, um, I had a tremendous amount of access and power also being able to write the checks that I was able to write in my former role. And we really understood sort of being in these networked communities of activists that we had a responsibility to carry their stories back to where we were. And I think that was you know how we became really close. And you know a lot of the people in our friends group and the extended family group today are are still activists that are on the ground and in the streets working on these issues. And anything that we can do to continue to drive access, awareness, and resources back to them has been the same thing that we've been doing in different forms for the past decade.
1: incredible i mean even with detroit blows and detroit grows and now with first woman's bank i mean you guys are unstoppable it's like you're leveling up you're taking your influence and shifting that spotlight into these issues that you're actually able to affect real change around you know even though you have this star power this access and you being like this youngest dynamo viacom executive and you have this incredible access And yet, I'm sure there's probably times where you walk into that boardroom or, you know, you're doing the raise and you're still, which is ridiculous, but you're still feeling like a little underestimated or tell me more about that. Like, how do you prep for those conversations and how do you stay so focused on the mission when it probably has to be frustrating sometimes?
0: I think especially as an actor, I'm accustomed to being underestimated and I find it to be incredibly humorous. There's nothing I enjoy more than someone thinking that I can't bat around financial facts or policy, be it foreign or domestic, if we're talking about political activism, I think being underestimated can be an incredible fuel. It is tiring, but I also think there's a reality for us as women in the world, as I'm sure there is for you, that it might make you tired, but it's the circumstance. So what are you going to do with it? You know, the, the idea of a utopia where that doesn't happen is something I believe we're all building towards for future generations, but it's not where we are now. And so I think to get too caught up in what you wish was happening versus how you're going to circumnavigate a situation you find yourself in can be a bit of a waste of time. And so for us, everywhere we have worked, everywhere we have had a presence in a room or access to get behind a door has helped us really hone our vision. You know, It was these enormous partnerships that we were doing and working on That made us say, what happens with a specific brick and mortar in Detroit? What happens with less money that could go farther? You know, she could write seven and eight figure checks, you know, for a massive media conglomerate to huge philanthropies. But what would happen if we were writing five to $10,000 checks to local organizations in her hometown and my home away from hometown of Detroit? And being willing to figure out how you can make the most impact, I think, regardless of scale is incredibly important if you want to be an entrepreneur. Our work on the sort of larger number, national scale impact side is what helped us know that when we launched our business, we would also launch a 501c3 to stand up alongside it. Those were things we learned by doing. And as so many small business owners, Again, perhaps not what someone might expect from, you know, the gal from TV and one of the youngest executives at a media conglomerate ever. But we experienced what so many women and so many families and so many people around America did through the pandemic. A business, a brick-and-mortar business was not sustainable through a global pandemic. And so what were we going to do next? And it was a very interesting moment where... Years, nearly a decade of public service on both of our parts, working on political campaigns, you know, showing up, doing that kind of in-person, on-the-ground activism led to folks from the Obama administration calling and saying, do you have any interest in getting involved in the first women's bank? And we said, absolutely, because we've just come from the exact experience of women fundraising for a business. And we know what our hurdles were. What's happening to our friends who don't have the privilege of the access that our careers have afforded us in and around this country? How can we advocate for those women? How can we straddle the line of high access rooms, often guarded doors and you know, brick and mortar business builders? We've been both, not a lot of people have. And how can we take those experiences and continue to advocate and iterate with that ever growing knowledge.
2: Yeah. I think also because we were, as Sophia was saying, battle tested entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. you know, and managing through periods of change in a business and then also understanding when it might be time to wind things down. Mm-hmm. But the decisions that you go through when you have to determine how you're going to capitalize a business, most small business owners go to a bank. And so mm-hmm. the small business loan is generally their first. You know access to outside capital outside of friends and family. Even as angel investors, there's you know lots of times where we see angel deals on the equity side where there's already debt on the books. So there is a time and a place for a different type of capital to grow a business and to hit your metrics and KPIs to be ready for the next either round of funding or the next period of growth. And understanding that and having been through that, we really knew that, you know, we wanted to continue to invest on the angel side, but the debt side was really an opportunity for us with the First Women's Bank to create access and resources for other women-owned businesses. Mm -hmm. And what we love about the bank is, you know, we talked about the power of money, right? So more deposits that are at the bank increases our capacity to lend. And the First Mm -hmm. Women's Bank is, you know, the first... Women founded, owned, and run bank in the United States that really focuses on supporting women-owned businesses and the women's economy, and so that's the power. It's about you know an individual, a, a, a nonprofit, or you know some of our big corporate partners like American and Comcast and Aon and United Airlines really putting financial equity in this model by keeping deposits at the bank that help us to facilitate more lending to women-owned businesses. So that's the power also, as well as the work that we're doing as well through the collective, which is resources and programming that are gonna be offered for women-owned businesses and founders at all stages of their journey. So everybody's not ready for debt. Equity is better for some. Yeah. Um, and sometimes the best thing to do is just to refine your business strategy, and become more capital efficient, and not take anything at all. Huh? But it, we've been through all three. Mm-hmm. of those cycles and we've had to make different decisions at different points that impact our business. But I also think that that becomes a useful skill set when we evaluate businesses. And there's been times when we said, you just have to hang in there. You don't really want our money right now. Right. We'd love to give it to you, right. but you just need to hang on. And we went through those periods as well. And then there's others when we say, you know, you're gonna be servicing a convertible note that's gonna feel like debt. Debt might be the better opportunity for you because you don't have to give up any equity. And so those conversations have really, I think, inspired our desire to want to work more closely with small businesses and to think about how we can grow them kind of on the debt side and also on the equity side.
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, where were you guys like seven years ago? I needed to talk to you <laughs> about them. But, you know, it's interesting because so this the first female-owned, female-focused, female narrative, female-powered bank came to be in 2021, just like. Pause on that. Okay. Bravo that you guys are on board. It's incredible. The fact that you're both a triple threat, that you've had the owner-operator experience, you've had the fundraising experience, you've had the investor experience. I mean, what a special skill set to be able to see it from every side of the table and be able to offer it such great value because you know, most traditional scale mail pale investors, they've only been on one side of the table. I mean, you guys are like the triple threat. So I mean, I will say. So back in 2013, I launched a tampon delivery service called PMS.com. And I wanted to be the Dollar Shave Club for women's health care. So I was holding up a tampon in Newport Beach, California, at a huge table full of alpha male bro investor dudes. And they backed the company. 18 months later, we ended up selling the URL because it was more valuable than the business itself. Long story long. I just can't imagine how that journey might have been different for a founder like myself if I had had guidance from these dynamos. And I just I really want every woman that's listening to this podcast to really understand that there are these tools and these resources and that you're really making waves through this initiative with this partnership. So. Tell us more about some of the tools and resources that you're developing to help gals like me make better choices when we put it on the line and be more strategic with how we chase our dreams so it can be more fiscally successful.
2: One thing that's worth mentioning, especially when you were talking about, you know, going in and fundraising and there being a lot of white men on the other side of the table is we have to change what the table looks like. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that we really have started to create some more formal structures around our investing is because of this. I mean, in the VC space specifically, I mean, less than 10 percent of women are general partners at venture capital funds. So we have to also think about who is able to allocate the capital. So, again, it's power, right? It's like who has the resources that they're even able to allocate? You have like $83 trillion of assets under management and 98.6 percent of those resources are managed by white men. And they're not even the most, you know, highly performing demographic Mm -hmm. of investment managers.
0: The 3% of investment that is managed by other managers, folks like us, for example, outperforms the 97% that is managed by white men. There is a natural occurrence that can happen where people trust sameness. So a bunch of men, Looking at you, holding up a tampon, didn't get it. If we'd been at the table, we would have gotten it. And there is, you know, an incredible friend of ours and ally in this space, Cindy Eckert, you know, who launched Addie, the female Viagra. And her story is unbelievable. Mm. Being undercut and undervalued and underestimated at every turn. And she persisted. And so for us, thinking about the ways we can create pathways to persistence, for female founders is immensely important. Not just for us being at the cap table and getting to say, we believe in that company over there, but also so that women who are founding businesses bet on themselves in the ways that men tend to. This is socialized. These are messages we're given. There's a reason that 42% of small businesses are founded by women, but women are only accessing around 6% of lending capital for small business. Women tend to be more analytical. We have had less opportunity to borrow, less access to get in those rooms. So we're much more risk averse. This is in the data. This is not just, you know, hypothetical, but we tend to be more risk averse as a populace in the spaces of business because we have less opportunity. So how can women like the three of us change the opportunity metrics so that the women founding businesses in this country are able to participate more fully. And that's what feels exciting to us. As Nia was mentioning with the bank, as we're building the collective, we are working with some of the best financial minds in the world who have helped to run, you know, the federal government fiscally. They understand what happens state by state. They've got access to data and information and are saying, if we can provide these tools If we can build these curriculums, if we can make them free for not just our clients, but anyone who wants to take the time to go through these courses or resource buckets online, we can make business a better experience for women and for anyone who might be underrepresented. And that to us feels incredible. And so whether that's us bringing our trifecta of experience, as you mentioned, into that room to help storytell and to help craft the messaging of some of those resources, or we get to go out and evangelize those resources made by incredible financial experts at the bank, we know that there is a real privilege that we can spend by providing our audiences with tools like this. And to your point, you didn't have access to them seven years ago, Mm -hmm. and don't you wish you had? 100%. Yeah. And a lot of it is also, you know,
2: the ability to connect uh, the collective or really sort of this network effect of resources and market. And our business operations are still based in Michigan. And one of our partners, TechTown Detroit, they just received an EDL grant. And they essentially have resources to train POC angel investors and women angel investors in the Midwest. So part of it is also making sure that we're able to strengthen the community so that on the debt side or in the angel investing space, that there's more people that look like us that are also at the table. So that's important as well. I mean, because it's again, it comes back to access. Then if you have some resources to invest, you have the acumen to be able to do so. Oftentimes you're not seeing the same type of deals. We were able to get better deals investing alongside friends who had exited companies, but it was the company that we kept. So what about people that don't have access? I mean, even for women, angel investors, I think it's like four percent of black women and seven percent of uh, latinas are able to even access series c deals so we think Mm -hmm. about like the stage of deals and you know more risk is generally driven out in later stages there's you know a longer history of cash flows and you're able to determine if a company is sort of hitting its metrics and what the growth trajectory will look like so it becomes more restrictive in these later series. And we just did a a series C deal a few months ago, Mm -hmm. but we're able to see that as angels. And we just want to make sure that everyone continues to have access. So it's going and coming. It's about the businesses that you're able to build. And it's about once you achieve the ability to be able to make investments in other companies, being able to have access as well. So it's like money is power, money is access. And for us, it's always been about creating access for as many you know
1: people as possible so incredible in doing that in chasing down that mission what has been one of the toughest challenges that you've struggled with that you've managed to either overcome or at least it's not quite so suffocating as it used to be? Like, is there an element of this journey that you just have a certain approach to it or basically how to replicate what you're doing? <laughs> like, like, how do you overcome some of those big challenges? I mean, is there something that really kind of keeps you up at night where you're like, I can't believe this is still a narrative that we're having in 2022?
2: I think it's again going back to access. It's yeah. encouraging the people that we know who have tremendous resources. To also think about allocating those resources in ways that they can also empower people that look like us. You know, you have some of these large systems of networked capital, but if there were more people that were people of color, that were women, members of LGBTQ community, there just has to be diversity in who gets to also allocate capital as well. And I would say that that's probably the thing that I find the most frustrating Mm -hmm. because, money is power and people like to hold on to power. But as Sophia was saying, the data shows us that more diversity in thought on the investment team is going to yield higher returns. Mm -hmm. So I think that If we can begin to kind of relinquish some of that in the context of these systems, I think that you know we'll have just a more robust uh, ecosystem, business ecosystem in the capital markets. And if there's anything that I think about, it's just that I wish there were more opportunities for Mm -hmm. diverse allocators, for first-time fund managers, things Mm -hmm. along those lines.
0: Yeah, I think I get tired of the fact that scarcity mentality still has a foothold. Because we know that it's a lie. We know that it's a narrative based on fear, not on data or outcomes. If we created, for example, for the three of us in this conversation, gender parity across every pay grade in America, if women made the same amount of money as men, snap of our fingers, our nation's GDP would increase by 13 points. So it's not that us earning the same means some man earns less. It means us earning the same grows the economy of the entire country. It means everybody can eat more. Everybody benefits more. And we know that to be true. But a lot of people, to Nia's point, are afraid to, quote, relinquish power because they can't seem to get over the hurdle of realizing that by welcoming more people in, they will generate a Bigger amount of power, resource, money, access, et cetera, whatever word you want to ascribe to it. And I think early in our activist careers, I thought by now that would have gotten through to everyone. And now I realize how pervasive the competing narratives are, because a group of a very few number of humans can hold an immense amount of resource by holding onto old systems. So it has made me more patient and certainly even more committed to replacing those older systems with newer, better ones.
1: It's interesting, right? Because we always come to this part of like, okay, so what's the answer? Not that there's an answer to solve it with a magic wand. You know, my husband works in Venture Capital and the page, their About Us page, I mean, everyone looks the same. And it's interesting because I'll like listen on some of their conference calls and the perspective is just so homogenous, just an echo chamber of what their comfort point, like the sameness. How do you think that young entrepreneurs, whether it's small business locally in Detroit, or whether it's someone trying to start an online tampon delivery service, you know, across the world, what do you think for these young female founders is the one area that we should be thinking about more closely, like more strategically, like when you're vetting your investments, is there something you see us making like a big mistake that you see a lot of us making in the early stages of like, how do we take this from idea to implementation?
2: I mean, often what I see that can be disheartening is taking the wrong type of money. I think that when you take on any sort of capital, you know, debt or equity, that's adding another member of your team, like a part of your family that's really, you know, bringing an idea to fruition. And so you want to have great partners, whether, you know, that's at the bank or that's, you know, different types of investors that you may have. And you want to be strategic about what that capital looks like, because we're almost at a point right now where money isn't like special. There's a lot of it that's circulating in the ecosystem and there's a lot of it that wants to be supportive of like women owned businesses. So really thinking about what your cap table looks like, whose money you want to take. You know, we've even seen some angel deals that we've done where the founders have said, we want to make sure that there's diversity on our cap table. We know that we need the resources. We want to find strategic capital. And we want the cap table of our business to look like what we think a progressive organization looks like. And you're starting to see that type of power come Mm -hmm. from founders, like Mm -hmm. really stepping into it. And I think you're finding better partners. You know, you're finding... Partners that really can think about ways in which they can drive value for your organization. And to me, ultimately, that's the most important thing. Strategies are going to change. Tactics are going to change. But having someone that can really work with you to do what's in the best interest of your business, I think, is absolutely the most uh, important decision that you make. Mm -hmm. And so seeing empowered founders really recognize the power of capital, but the opportunity they have to um, also express a point of view and the capital that they take, I think, is just a really
1: refreshing
2: uh, shift that we're starting to see.
1: said. Okay, so I want to talk about the pandemic. It's 2020. You are about four or five years into Detroit Blows. You're getting momentum. It's super exciting. And then the pandemic shuts down the business within moments. That is so relatable to so many, some of the things that obviously you guys are doing, it's like, wow, I wonder if we could ever do that, right? But that is relatable because we all had a moment during the pandemic where we had to seriously reinvent, scramble. There was like team wait and team create. Some people were like, let's wait for it to be over, wait for the vaccine. They were paralyzed. Other ones of us were like team create. Let's learn this. Let's scramble here. Let's pivot here. You gals are professional pivoters. Tell us about that moment where you decided like, what are we going to do with this? And then also, was there any moment where, like, do you guys ever panic or freak out? Or do you just always just have a plan? Like, do you have a plan B, a plan C? Like, how did you pivot?
0: I mean, I panic all the time. (laughs) I was going to say, what? Does (laughs) does it look like we don't panic? There's always a plan A, B, C, D. (laughs) Everybody panics. And I, I think to your point, this idea that anybody has it all figured out is absolute nonsense. Even people who are brilliant at business and who have a vision and who do have four plans just in case, which also is typical of us. It's all still a day-by-day experience. Yeah. So I think this idea that anybody has it more figured out than you is pretty silly. It was certainly a, a moment. It's something that I think we have in common with so many other small business owners. You know, we were just gearing up to go out into the world adventure venture to take our business nationwide. We were ready to scale. And then it turned out one of the most dangerous things you could do Uh, was blow aerosol particles around with a blow dryer. So there was not only the intense experience of having to halt our forward momentum, but there was the reality of keeping our people safe. It was a lot.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Also, one of the things I remain proud of is how we wound down the business as mm-hmm. well, which is, again, thinking about the people, our, you know, our partners, our team members that built the business alongside us and deciding to you know, negotiate out of our commercial lease when we did and closing down the physical operations created more bandwidth for us to make sure that our people were taken care of in yes. a time when they really needed you know, the support of the family you know, that we built. And so I continue to remain proud of, the, of, of what and how we did. But I don't think we've ever been paralyzed by indecision. It's always been, is this the next best option? Yes, let's execute this plan. And then if this doesn't work we can move to the next thing and I think One of the benefits in our strategy is that we moved very quickly. You know, to Sophia's point, we were able to look not just at the market in Detroit, but in, you know, the next three to five markets that we were looking to expand into, looking at the real estate, looking at um, occupancy rates and what the projections were looking like for businesses. I mean, this was a volume-based business, and we were able to understand that the future of work was changing and the way in which we aggregate in spaces was changing as well. So there was a societal shift that was happening that certainly has continued to have lingering effects Mm -hmm. and being able to project out sort of what the culture was going to look like created a scenario we were able to better understand that this wasn't the right time for the expansion and the way in which we were planning to undertake it Mm -hmm. and once we were able to look at that and really come to terms with it we could make quick business decisions that were in the best interest of our investors and of our team
1: it's so fantastic. I mean, it really is impressive. And I wonder how much of that is teachable and how much of that is instinct. You know, it's interesting, like nature versus nurture, basically in a business sense. And I wonder how we can better cultivate that type of agility in those type of situations. Well,
0: I think one of the most important things you can do is create pillars of who your business is. You know, our business had an identity that is as important as our identities And our work family that Mia is mentioning, who we always prioritized, existed as human beings to us, not numbers on a page. And if you create the identity of your business, you know what fits within that filter and what doesn't. And if it doesn't, it allows you to pivot more quickly. It it allows you to always keep your priorities in line. Our priority was always our people. First, our employees, and second, everyone who came in the doors of our business. And the the merger between their experiences in community was what we always designed for. And so making sure that as founders, that community remained of paramount importance allowed us to much more quickly react, analyze, process, the, to be frank, heartbreak around loss of something as we realized the entire world, to her point, was changing how it gathered in spaces. You know, it allows you to be much more personal and in a way to depersonalize so many things and act on fact. And I think that's a very important balance that perhaps we're not taught enough of, but we've learned by experience and we try to include others in when we talk about business and best practices.
1: Mm -hmm. Act on fact, so good. Okay, so question for both of you. When we talk about success, you're here for Success Magazine, a photo shoot. How do you define success for you as an individual? Not necessarily like your mission or your initiatives, but for you like as, a, as a human woman, like what does success feel like or look like for you?
2: I sort of go back to the beginning of our conversation. It's options for me. Being able to preserve options for myself, for my family, for everyone around me, that to me is the the mark of success because with those options then I can make you know firm decisions I can have the the clarity of purpose to move into an investment or to move into a new strategy because I know that I am protected and sort of in buffered in, in some respects so I work really hard to preserve those options and and success looks like agency being able to do you know what I want when I want within reason, knowing that you know, I'm driven by a moral compass that's guided our work from the very beginning, and it's not just our work, I think it's how we live our lives.
0: Mm-hmm. Success to me is a feeling, it's not a number. Chasing a number, I hear, I hear a lot of men talk about that, well, what's your number? Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. I have been in stages where I've been doing financially very well in my life and been utterly miserable and been in stages where I have no idea what job is next and I'm the happiest I've ever been. To be clear, if you don't have any options, if you are currently in a financial class of people who is struggling just to get by, you don't have options and you don't have time. And so when we think about these moral compasses to us, we want to create more equity and opportunity so that more people have options, more people have time. When I pull back into my individual experience, it's very clear to me that there is much more to success than money. And for me, everything has to be grounded in mission. Otherwise, no money or some money, it feels hollow. And when we work from mission, when we work from purpose, when we work from community, I find my markers of success in, am I able to rest when I'm with people, or am I anxious? Mm, Am I sleeping well, or do I wake up every night at 3.30 in the morning? There are clues that the body gives me. And I have learned as I have evolved that success is more even feeling. And from there, I can figure out, what do I want to go after? What are my goals? What feels good for me? Does the thing that feels good for me also prioritize my community? One of the best compliments Mia ever gave me early in our friendship was she said, every time you get an opportunity, you turn around and say, hey guys, come. I don't want it if it's just for me, I want it for us. And getting older and experiencing more has put me in the position where I feel comfortable saying, if it's not for us, it's not for me. So take it or leave it to anyone who comes to me with an opportunity. And what I hope, what will mean success to me in this next decade is if we can continue setting that example and then we can create a repeatable pattern. We can scale that for other people. Success to me looks like healthy community. That's really the ultimate goal. It's also made me redefine the idea of luxury. For so long, we've been like, well, luxury is that Bottega bag or that business class ticket or whatever. Luxury to me now, time, free time. That is the ultimate luxury to me. Having the time to dream, to ideate, to show up, that feels nice. And so as I think about what personal success looks like, I'm searching out ways to have more time.
1: So good. Well. With everything both of you have going on, I pray that you carve out that space that you need to feel that because I am just blown away by both of you and just your generosity and your vulnerability. Just what a special day. And I'm just thanking you both so much for spending this time with us today. Guys, you can follow both Mia and Sophia on Instagram, First Women's Bank, um, angel investors, entrepreneurs, activists, badass women. Follow these women. Take notes. Thank you both so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for investing your heart, your mind, of course, your time with me here today. And it is my deepest hope that you have gleaned at least a few new nuggets on how to better live a life that you love on your terms. You can subscribe to see all of my weekly episodes. And if you have time, you can send a screenshot of your review of the podcast to onyourterms at aaronking.com and you'll be sent a free access pass to my Digital Persuasion Masterclass where you'll learn how to attract attention, increase your influence and sell smarter from behind the screen. I hope that you'll join me next week for another episode of On Your Terms and until then, let's connect on Instagram at mrs.erin.king. Till next time, friends.